Hi, this is Richard Watts, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Hello, and uh, sorry not to have been with you last week. Big thanks to Billy for filling in for me while I was struggling with a black dog. Uh, back in bed with a major bout of depression. But uh, yeah, the black dog is back in its kennel now. It is chained. It is growling quietly in the distance. But uh, I can pay no heed to it for a while longer, which is nice. Um, speaking of thanks, also big thanks to my producer Adam for all their hard work this year. Adam is now on a well-deserved break. And Kirby is my current producer. So, Kirby, thank you. Uh, looking forward to working with you. Coming up on the show today, oh, we've got some fun. We're going to catch up with Jim Rimmer from the Arts Wellbeing Collective, which is run by Arts Centre Melbourne and is running some uh, mental health support programs for the arts community. So I'm quite personally and professionally interested in hearing more about that. Now, as I mentioned at the top of the show, I've been struggling with my mental health, uh, depression and anxiety. Horrible double whammy. Uh, thanks to Nat, who texted in to say um, uh, that it's so honest. Uh, it's great you're so honest that uh, I'm talking about my mental health and that it helps them as well. And that's one of the reasons I talk about it, because we need to destigmatize mental health um, and challenges with it, because one in five of us are going to have mental health issues in our lives. In the arts industry, that statistic is possibly even higher. I'm joined on the line by Jim Rimmer, who is the head of program from the Arts Wellbeing Collective at Arts Centre Melbourne, which is a program specifically set up to look at and tackle and find solutions and ways that the arts sector can get better at talking about and dealing with mental health issues. Jim, good morning. Good morning, Richard. Good morning, listeners. For people who don't know much about the, uh, the, the Arts Wellbeing Collective in and of itself, before we start talking about some of the new initiatives and programs that are being run by the collective, what is the, kind of, uh, the, the Arts Wellbeing Collective specifically? Sure. Uh, Arts Wellbeing Collective was established in 2017 as an initiative of Arts Centre Melbourne, um, with the Arts Centre really stepping into its industry leadership role. There was uh, some, some of the staff at Arts Centre were having mental health challenges and the leadership of the organisation at that point realised that it was endemic across the sector and not specific to Arts Centre Melbourne as a workplace. So they developed this initiative which very quickly gained an enormous amount of traction across the sector um, as something that was desperately needed. So we were a very, very small team. We're supported by philanthropic funding. We basically create user-friendly resources. Um, we deliver training programs. We do presentations, as you mentioned, to destigmatize mental health, but also to give people the tools that are better that equip them to manage their own personal mental health 
and also mental health in creative workplaces, which uh, have some unique characteristics in comparison to many other workplaces. Now, am I correct in thinking that um, not only has the arts wellbeing collective been very successful here, but the model has been adapted in other countries, which is surely a sign of its impact and importance in the creative sector? Yeah, we, we get a lot of interest from other countries. Um, the model has been adapted in the UK. Um, we've recently had one of our resources, a de-rolling booklet. Um, it's the first of our resources to be translated into, into a different language, and that's been Polish. Um, yeah, so we're getting quite a lot of traction, uh, especially from English-speaking countries, but, but from others also. We should also point out for people who don't work in the sector, de-rolling is the process of um, when you come off stage, particularly if you've been playing a challenge, uh, a character, um, a kind of ugly, vicious character who is nothing like you in real life or who has gone through an incredibly traumatic situation on stage, de-rolling is the process of letting that character go, leaving them in the dressing room so that the emotions of that experience don't travel with you. Now... In terms of the the kind of, I guess, the, the unique challenges of the creative sector, Jim, what is it about working in the arts and art sector workers that seems to make them uh, more likely to experience mental health issues, suicidal ideation and so forth than the general public? We... First of all, I'll say that uh, Arts Wellbeing Collective aims at uh, programs and resources at everybody that works in the creative sector, so not just performers or creatives, but people that work backstage, people that work in administration, etc. They, they all have a role in collectively creating mentally healthy workplaces. Um, there are a number of factors in specific to the creative sector, so I guess... The first that people will be familiar with is that work can be quite precarious and it's it's the origin of what is called the gig economy. So people have up and down in terms of their employment um, circumstances, which can be very draining. Um, when people are at work, um, they sometimes don't have as much, depending where they are in the, the power structure of um, the, the product they're producing, um, they may not have particularly much control. Um, often we have scenarios where people are not doing terribly much during the day and then all of a sudden they have to be on 100% and that can be a really hard balance. Um, so, yeah, there's things about control of the workplace being given too little work to do, being given too much to do, um, and then inclusive and inclusiveness and diversity and equity are all issues that still really permeate the performing arts, especially in Australia. Um, we like to bang the drum, drum as being an inclusive workplace, but on the ground it actually isn't the case. It's getting better, it's improving, but... Um, yeah, so for, for instance, there's some communities that are more um, 
more likely to experience mental health challenges or, or because it's trans week I'll single out the trans community um, and so if a trans person is working in the performing arts that creates an intersectionality intersectionality that is um, especially vulnerable um, so and there's there's also uh, balances between the type of people that that the, that the creative sector attracts the people that tend to feel more, that tend to be more in touch with their emotions. Um, so it's not solely the responsibility of... Um, we, we can't solely place it at the feet of work habits. It is also the type of people that creatives are. Yeah, that makes total sense, um, particularly having interviewed a lot of artists and comedians over the years. Um, now... If people want to learn more about the Arts Wellbeing Collective, they can go to artswellbeingcollective.com for information. But I'm particularly intrigued... Uh, .com.au. Uh, my apologies. Thank you, Jim. Um, but uh, in particular, the Arts Wellbeing Collective uh, not so long ago launched a new training program developed by the creative sector for the creative sector to uh, to help create better mentally healthy workplaces. Talk to us a little bit about this. Sure. Um, we launched this new program in September and started delivering in October. Um, the training program, uh, there's five modules. They're developed specifically so that people can enter at, at any different point, depending on their own mental health journey and that of their workplaces. So some of our courses are two-hour introductory courses and they go right through to two-day masterclasses. Um, we've based our training program on a evidence-based framework developed by Dr. Jaren, sorry, Dr. Aaron Jarden from University of Melbourne. So the framework for the training program is me, we, us, so looking after ourselves, looking after our colleagues, and then creating the structures within our workplaces that we can look after everybody. Um, so we also run these programs. A majority of them are run both face-to-face -face and online. There are one or two that we only deliver face-to-face. -face. Now, in terms of... The, I guess the focus on the individual in the workplace. That's something I wanted to pick up on because I'm conscious of the fact that the, the, the sector sometimes talks a lot about the importance of resilience. And it's not just the art sector that does that. Throughout COVID, we saw resilience as such a key buzzword and so many workplaces going, resilience, resilience, well-being, well-being. But so often the focus seems to be on the individual getting better so they can be a better worker in the, the the neoliberal capitalist system. So it's, I mean, the system is what is causing a lot of the problems, but we seem to be making the individual try to be better so that they can be a better drone for the hive. Um, is this the same in the arts? I'm curious to know. Uh, I... Uh... It's a challenging question to answer diplomatically. I think there are some uh, nefarious characters in the arts 
that are very much entwined with that neoliberal capitalist model of production cycle. But uh, I think there are also many, many people that get involved in the arts for far more altruistic reasons. Um, and accordingly, people just need to look after themselves. It's like mental health is like physical fitness. We can't rely on our physical fitness when we're falling apart. Um, and then if we, if we haven't trained or eaten well or slept well, then our physical fitness isn't going to be there for us when we need it. And that's similar with mental health. If we don't look after ourselves when we come across challenging times, um, we're, we're not going to be prepared to respond accordingly. Um, my, my own personal passion is trying to ensure that our sector has as great a diversity as possible. Um, and that, I think, is very much reliant on people having the tools that they need to to have longevity in our sector, to feel as though they belong in our sector, um, and for everybody to be looking after each other. Now, in terms of having those tools, the Arts Wellbeing Collective's training program, which I understand is supported by the Ron and Margaret Dobell Foundation, you mentioned that it's a series of, what, full-day, half-day, and two-hour both in-person and online workshops to encourage, uh, I guess, a focus on uh, creating mentally healthy workplaces and also ensuring that people are equipped with uh, mental first aid skills. So that in the same way that in any other workplace, say if somebody, I don't know, cuts themselves badly or falls over, hits their, ha their head or has a heart attack, if you have physical first aid skills, you can look after that. But these new programs from the Arts Wellbeing Collective are designed to create mental health first aid courses for individuals and organisations alike. How do people working in the, in the art sector get involved and take part in these programs? Uh, so our next mental health first aid session is being run on the 22nd, uh, sorry, 21st and 22nd of November. Um, after that, we have, it's our final uh, training program for 2023, it's develop and implement creative self-care plan. Um, so both of those programs can be, uh, participants can register on our website. Um, we have release dates for our early 2024 programs. Um, so I'll be running from the 7th of February. Uh, I would also encourage uh, people that are interested to incorporate this into their own professional development plans in their workplace and speak to their managers or, or their bosses, depending on the style of workplace they work, that they have, um, and uh, trying, trying to get the costs covered by, by your employer. Employers have an obligation, an existing obligation in our OHS Act in Victoria and those elsewhere in Australia to manage the psychological safety of their work workers as much as they're managing the physical safety. Um, so it is it is as pertinent for um, 
em- employers to to pay for this professional development process as it is for individuals to look after themselves. For more information about the Arts Wellbeing Collective and the programs they're running, you can go to artswellbeingcollective.com.au forward slash training if you're specifically interested in these training programs for artists and arts workplaces. Uh, There is also a range of documentation and material on the Arts Wellbeing Collective website, such as the uh, the de-rolling guide that Jim talked about earlier. So that website again, artswellbeingcollective.com.au. I've been talking with Jim Rimmer, who is the head of program at the Arts Wellbeing Collective run by the Arts Centre Melbourne, a groundbreaking program in the creative industries. Jim, thank you so much for joining us on the program today. Thank you, Richard. Thank you, everybody. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. Something that is taking place closer to home is a new exhibition at the Art Gallery of Ballarat. Whereabouts Printmakers Respond is the name of the exhibition. It's running from the 18th of November across the summer through to the 4th of February. And I'm particularly intrigued by this exhibition because it's curated by a printmaker, not just exhibiting the work of printmakers. Rona Green is the printmaker in question who has curated Whereabouts Printmakers Respond at Art Gallery of Ballarat and joins us on the line now. Rona, good morning. Hello, Richard. How are you? I'm well. I'm well indeed, and thank you for joining us. Now, this certainly strikes me as slightly unusual, that somebody from outside uh, the, uh, the an organisation, uh, in this case kind of uh, a major gallery, a major regional gallery, uh, that uh, an external person gets invited in to curate something. Um, does, is, how common is this in the art world? Um, I, I think it's... Not super common, but it's a possibility for artists to approach galleries with project ideas. And I think due to my experience with such things, this is probably, oh, I would have organised around 20 plus of these types of projects. So I think when I approached the Art Gallery of Ballarat, they had the confidence to take this project on board. And I've been working with their curator, Julie McLaren, and she's been a fantastic person to help me get the project up and running. So I shouldn't have just introduced you as a printmaker and curator. I should have introduced you as a champion of printmaking who is making sure that their art form (laughs) is represented elsewhere. Yes, I absolutely adore printmaking. I studied at uh, La Trobe University in Bendigo back in the early 90s and I had some fantastic printmaking teachers there, Peter Jacobs and John Robinson, for example, and they just ignited my love of the medium. It just has so many possibilities. There's so many techniques that fall under the umbrella of printmaking that it can just keep you preoccupied for a lifetime. 
I was about to ask, what is it about printmaking that so kind of fascinates you? But you've just answered that question. So um, now in terms of the exhibition itself, then um, it, you've what invited something like I think it's over 50 emerging and established printmakers from across Victoria to participate in Whereabouts. Yes, it was extremely difficult to sort of finalise a list of artists to invite to participate in the project because obviously even though there's a whole bunch of us taking part in it, 56 artists in total including myself, obviously there's hundreds of people across Victoria making print and creating interesting things. So I guess my objective was to choose a, as you said, a number of artists, including emerging and established um, artists, but to also represent viewpoints from across the state. So I guess one of the prime objectives was to make sure I was selecting artists that were dotted all around Victoria. How, how, how kind of diverse across Victoria are we talking? Well, as, as broad as I possibly could. And I, I guess not so much a restriction, but I suppose something that um, lends towards the final selection of the artist is who's up for participating. Because even though the project results in the exhibition of the Art Gallery Ballarat, um, the second component of the project is that it is an artist print exchange. So when the people who view the exhibition at the gallery are seeing 55 prints from the 56 artists as one uh, a collaborative pair, each of those artists has actually printed an edition of 57 of their prints so that each artist involved can receive one of everybody's works in a specially made box um, as a result of the end of the project. It's a fantastic idea, the idea of creative exchange which will also then presumably result in, what, future collaboration, cross-fertilisation of practice, but also just every artist who participates gets to admire the work of their peers. Yes, it's amazing. So obviously, you know, the people that sign up to these projects, when I invite them, they have to take on that task of printing a very large edition. And a lot of uh, printmakers you know, that might be a bit too much of a challenge or not really something that they're interested in. So it's a, it's just wonderful to be able to get so many people on board that are willing to, um, you know, take up that task. And as you say, as a result, we all get this amazing collection of prints. And I think that's one of the strengths of, you know, artists, printmakers or artists who make prints is that um, sort of inclination to want to share and it's one of the bonuses of printmaking is that it can exist in multiple so you are able to sort of um, spread your work around broadly quite easily in a sense. And it also means that for the general audiences who are attending whereabouts printmakers respond at Art Gallery of Ballarat are seeing new work. This is not a collection of archival work from the gallery's collection, for example, leavened with one or two recent works. This is all very recent work. So in many ways, this is a survey of contemporary concerns and ideas uh, within the Victorian printmaking community. 
Yes, so every artist has created their work especially for the exhibition and they were asked to create a work to a set paper size, hence to be able to form a set of works that were cohesive in nature. And the theme of the project, Whereabouts, you know, that is kind of about the place where someone or something is. So each artist was able to respond to that theme in whichever way they would like to. So it could be quite cerebrally, conceptually, in an abstract manner, or perhaps in a figurative, representational or more literal kind of way. But um, And the other great offshoot of the project is that the Art Gallery of Ballarat will be left with a set, entire set of the whereabouts prints as each artist has agreed to generously donate their one of their prints to the permanent collection of the Art Gallery of Ballarat. So the sort of giving aspect of it is therefore ongoing, which is lovely. Now, you're one of the participating artists yourself, I believe. Talk to us about how you've responded to that idea of a, of a sense of place and the work you've created for the exhibition. Yes, so I'm uh, located in the Dandenong Ranges in Victoria, just outside of Melbourne. So um, for anyone not familiar, it is a um, sort of rainforest-type um, landscape, very special um, area of Victoria, very unique. And I have a lot of wildlife visitors into my um, home, or around my home, not inside my home. But one of my favourite visitors, which is fairly rare, is the yellow-tailed black cockatoo. So I've created an image of a my version of a yellow-tailed black cockatoo, and my work is quite um, about animal hybrids. So I've given the cocky a little bit of an anthropomorphic um, feel, and he is tattooed with things that he perhaps likes eating. <laughs> so that was my response to the theme of whereabouts. Now, that, that notion of anthropomorphism and indeed tattooing uh, is something that's been a bit of a... I guess it, it, it's just... What, has it become your artistic signature in a way? Yes, it's something I investigate. I'm very interested in the... Well, at a basic level of the notion of pictures within pictures, hence sort of creating images of figures with um, tattooed imagery on them. But I also like the idea of the body telling a story. So within visual art, that the tattoo as a symbol can be used to to perhaps create a narrative around the characters that I depict in my work. Why tattooing in particular, for example? I mean, it's a subject that's fascinated me since the 90s, uh, but that was, the, I guess, the, the rev- that wave of the whole kind of uh, the new tribal culture that was emerging and the, uh, the modern primitive uh, book that was widely doing the rounds as well. What was it for you that kind of made tattooing one of the, the key subjects of, uh, or focuses of your practice? Not literally tattooing, but representing it in your artworks. Yes, the depiction of tattoos on my figures in the images, yes. I think what you've mentioned there I certainly gel with, so I figure we are probably of a similar age as all that connects with me as well. And um, around that time I would have been getting my first tattoos also, which are all um, sort of animal depictions of different animals. Um, I think also prior to that, growing up I had a few relatives 
um, that had tattoos and they were of the kind that were very sunburned and worn into the skin and sort of really looked more like birthmarks in a sense on those people because they were so integrated um, into their physical being and I think that tickled my fancy even as a youngster that idea that you could put pictures on yourself and hence my interest on doing that um, on the figures within my work. And what about the anthropomorphism? When did that become a subject of fascination? Because humanity has long anthropomorphized, that's a difficult word to say, particularly without coffee, um, has long yes. anthropomorphized animals as we've seen in cultures around the world. But for you as an artist, when did that become a particular focus of your practice? That was also when I was quite young, probably in primary school, that I really developed a fascination with Egyptian art and the way in ancient Egyptian art that um, gods and goddesses are depicted as anthropomorphic beings. And I really admire that the culture had such a respect for the qualities of animals and chose to use them as representations of what was important to them, perhaps culturally and societally. So it certainly stems from a long way back. But then, of course, that's juxtaposed with an interest in, um, you know, comics and cartoons. So, you know, we're talking Bugs Bunny and Top Cat and things like that um, were things I adored as a child. And it's interesting, I think with a lot of artists, what you are interested in as a kiddiewink certainly carries on perhaps to what you're interested in um, when you become an artist. Yeah. In terms of the other artists that uh, are represented in Whereabouts, printmakers respond at Art Gallery of Ballarat. Talk to us uh, a little, perhaps, Rona, about some of the other artists and some of their creative concerns as well. Yes, an interesting thing about bringing together a group of printmakers for an exhibition such as this is that I really keep an eye out for people whose work I'm not familiar with and perhaps have never met and also blend that a selection of those types of um, artists with artists that I know very well and perhaps have been participants in previous projects of mine um, also. So it's an interesting way to connect as you said earlier, with, you know, different people and new people. And then hopefully also the artists in the project can find out about um, artists they didn't know about and, as you say, make connections and in the past have even then possibly gone on to exhibit with each other due to meeting through these types of exchange projects. But um, it's interesting, like, someone whose work that I adore is Deborah Williams and she's a Melbourne-based artist who... Um, has a love of the dog and that is her primary subject that she explores. And I suppose another interesting aspect of these types of projects is often the artists will take the opportunity to try something different as they're creating a one-off work um, on the theme or a project. So um, Deborah's image is a beautiful screen print of a dog and it's extremely light in tone, greys and silvers, sort of creating an image that's almost like a reflection or a mirage of a silhouette of a dog um, out doing its own thing. And it's a beautiful image. And then, you know, at the 
I suppose that's sort of taken um, her works often referenced from observation and from life. But then we have sort of an emerging artist, um, Michael Lye, and he's created um, an etching which is extremely linear and uh, quite deceptively simple, beautifully made an intaglio print and etching. And he's taken, you know, a much more conceptual approach and sort of thought about how he can represent his whereabouts through a more abstract manner. So there's very contrasting sort of approaches um, from the artists in the project. And then, for example, you know, we've got someone like David Fraser who's based in central Victoria. And even though his work reflects upon himself and his life and thoughts about life, it also very clearly depicts the landscape in which he lives also so often figures in a bush type landscape that are quite um, melancholic on one level and maybe have a sense of introspection and he creates beautiful wood engravings and um, there's a great example of a little figure walking down a road um, sort of in a bush setting in this exhibition which is really gorgeous. And then I guess the opposite of melancholic perhaps would be the work of uh, Judy Horacek, who many people may know as a cartoonist through her work, who I had the pleasure of meeting through her work, uh, a collaboration that she did with the Flying Fruit Fly Circus not too long ago. So her work is in the exhibition as well. It is, yes. Judy is lovely. And this is... um the funny thing about such projects, even though I'm sort of on in my career now, probably been practicing, you know, art, my art for about 30 years, it's always such a buzz to invite people to participate in a project whose work you've admired because, you know, I love Judy's work as a teenager. So to then invite her to participate in a project and her to say yes is just such a thrill. And, yes, similarly with um, Jim Pavlidis, who's also an artist and illustrator. Um, Some people may know his work through the newspapers or books that he's illustrated. He is just an amazing guy and he's participated in a few of my projects and always comes up with something remarkable um in this case it's a gorgeous sort of nightscape of city buildings and it's quite it's a woodcut that's quite dark in tones blues and blacks but then he picks up on the little lights in building windows and has highlighted them in in yellows and oranges and created a really gorgeous jewel-like type image I'm looking forward to coming up to Ballarat to check out the exhibition over the summer break. The exhibition is called Whereabouts? Printmakers Respond at Art Gallery of Ballarat, which is located at 40 Lydiard Street North in Ballarat and details at www.artgalleryofballarat.com.au showing from the 18th of November until the 4th of February, so plenty of time to see it, but do not do what I usually do and make the mistake of going, it's the last couple of days, I must rush to see it now. Um, Book, uh, you kind of just just go, just go to the gallery itself uh, and spend time browsing, but make sure you check out whereabouts printmakers respond, which is curated by printmaker and uh, printing champion, uh, Rona Green. Rona, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for joining us. 
Thanks, Richard. And just very quickly, if anyone's interested, at 2pm this Saturday, the 18th of November, at the Art Gallery of Ballarat, I'll be presenting a talk about the whereabouts exhibition if anyone would like to come along. But thank you so much for the chat and all the best to all the listeners out there. Thank you again for joining us. And yes, whereabouts printmakers respond at Art Gallery of Ballarat from the 18th of November until the 4th of February, artgalleryofballarat.com.au for details. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. We're going to talk about a new production at the La Mama Courthouse Theatre. Now, as always... Uh, a quick acknowledgement, I am the chair of the La Mama Committee of Management. Uh, I do not benefit financially in any way from talking about La Mama shows, but I'd like to declare the conflict of interest and get it out of the way up front. So I am joined uh, in the studio by Glenn Shea, who is the writer and director of the show and also performing in it, and actor Sid Brisbane. Welcome to you both. Thank, Thank you. you. And Glenn, let's start by getting you to tell us about the play, the and I meant to ask you, off air, before I turned the microphone on, how do I pronounce the title? Is it M-I-W-1-3027 or is it My We 3027? Me We. Me We? Me We 3027. 3027. Me We 3027. Yes. What does the title represent? The title Me We 3027 represents uh, uh, a nut and jetty word from South Australia, Ralkin South Australia, which... Uh, if you all look on your $50 notes, you'll see David Unipin and the church uh, there. That's uh, where uh, the story comes from, Ralkin. Uh, Miwi is a Naranjeri word called uh, soul. And 3027 is the service number of Roland Carter, uh, one of the characters in Miwi 3027, who was the first uh, Naranjeri or Aboriginal uh, man from South Australia to enlist in the Australian Imperial Forces back in World War One. Now, you, you yourself are a Naranjeri, but also Watharong man. Correct. So... Um one of the things that I've noticed over, particularly say over the last 10, 12 years, is um, we are learning and discovering and, and telling on stages, at least, stories about First People servicemen, whether from World War One or World War Two. stories which I'm sure that for mob were known and talked about for years, but for white fellas like me, we are, and perhaps uh, I don't know if the same goes for for you as well, Sid. That that these we are learning stories about kind of people going off to war and fighting and uh, fighting for freedom and equality, for example, and then coming home and not getting the same freedom and equality they fought for. Correct. Correct. Not uh, uh, receiving the same uh, equality or... um, There's actually another story there. So if we go back to the Boer War uh, earlier in regards to uh, about 50 Naranjeri men who went over to um, uh, uh, where the Boer War was as uh, and then couldn't come back to Australia because they weren't allowed back in the country. So they had to resettle. Um, in in that country, and uh, Leanne Jupner Buckskin uh, from South Australia was telling me the story of uh, she was co-chair of the Australian Arts Council, had gone to um, across to uh, Africa and had seen this name in a cab and asked the question, and uh, this whole story of these Nut and Jetty servicemen who'd gone there but couldn't come home, weren't allowed to come back. 
that is just like I am genuinely shocked by that because yeah. I've known obviously that the 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 shameful nature of the white Australia policy and so forth, but for kind of to fellas to leave to fight for the country and then not be allowed in because they're not white mm. is that's just genuinely flabbergasting, I have to say. Yes. Yeah. Now, that is not what um, MeWe3027 is about, however. Talk to us a little bit about what the play is, the story the play is telling, and at which point, Sid, I'll bring you into the conversation as well because you've been sitting there quietly for a little bit. So MeWe3027 is based on um, uh, Roland Carter, Aboriginal Naranjeri man and Leonard Adams, a Jewish German ethnologist, and uh, uh, Roland in France uh, was wounded and captured and was put into uh, various POW camps. And he, uh, the commandant, because um, he kind of was saying it's too cold, then got him transferred to this POW camp called Half Moon, which was a camp which had the largest mosque in Europe with about 5,000 different coloured men and no fences. And so uh, Leonard, who just graduated from university at, you know, kind of the very beginning of uh, anthropology, ethnology, um, was on his first uh, first lived experience as an academic going out into the real world, into the camp, uh, recording all these different coloured men and found out that there were two Aboriginal men in the camp and uh, he uh, spoke to... Uh, one the other one, and then uh, spoke to Roland and found that Roland had the information that Leonard was looking for. And so they became lifelong friends in the short period of like four or five months in this camp, um, learning about each other. Um, Leonard learning about Roland and his culture and his cultural knowledge and Roland learning about uh, Leonard and everything that Leonard does. And yes... Yeah, and so I'm then guessing, Sid, that then you're playing Leonard. Yes, I'm playing Dr. Leonhard Adam. Uh, fascinating man. He, you know, he he met Roland in the camp, and they became lifelong friends, and they communicated with each other for the rest of their lives. Uh, so it's really a story about friendship, uh, about language, about learning, about listening. Uh, yes, yeah, so so. Leonard was always quite passionate about, you know, culture and uh, he, he spoke seven languages. He, he, he'd studied law um, at a very early age. You know, by the time he meets um, Roland, he's about 26 and he's already got all these, this knowledge base. But, but as Glenn said, this is the first time he can put this knowledge to use in a practical way. He's very excited and uh, extremely excited to meet uh, a man, a Nurnjeri man, with all that cultural knowledge that, that, that he's able to share with Leonard. Um, because of their friendship, uh, Roland shares more and more of his story and his culture with him. Yeah, and that, that friendship uh, continued after the war. Yes. Yes, continued after the war. The... Uh the, they both died in the same year of 1960. They never uh, visually saw each other after 1918, but uh, their kind of thoughts and connection uh, lasted a lifetime. And Leonard sent his uh, sister-in-law down to Raukin, etc. And so, yes, it, um, it, it's, you know, 
in war, men become friends and because of the circumstances, their friendship becomes so tight that their, their lives rely on how they survive and, and the strength that they get from each other, et cetera, et cetera. So kind of similar circumstances in this POW camp where you've got all these this war going on and, you know, and these two men who kind of connect. That notion of a of a such a tight bond that perhaps outsiders um, wouldn't have understood. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, and uh, you know, Leonhard is is not a he's an academic, so he's not a soldier. He's coming at it from a completely different point of view, from a viewpoint of humanity. Uh, and um, but he m- does make this very very special bond with Roland. Um, uh, and and as you found out in the story, he actually ends up in Australia during World War Two because he's a, a Jewish man. Um, so he's uh, he flees to to London um, at the start of World War Two. He's stripped prior to that. He's stripped of all his academia uh, his qualifications by the Nazis. So he ends up teaching at Cambridge University, and then the outbreak of World War Two arrested as an enemy alien and sent to Australia. So he, he makes it here um, and, and lives his last 20 years of his life in Australia and falls in love with the country and, you know, he's in his bliss finding out more and more about Aboriginal culture. Yeah. That, the, uh, the fact that Australia, the shame of Australia not learning from interning people in, in uh, prisoner of war camps, uh, like Datura being a, a, a classic a classic example and others kind of continuing on generations later we're still talking about detention and still putting people in detention let alone the shame of this country not coming to terms with its first peoples Um, but the one of the things that fascinates me about this play and this story is that the focus on friendship the the talking about the importance of finding shared connections, common bonds. This is a story that emphasises the things that connect us rather than the things that divide us, which feels so important at the moment. Yes. Very much so. It, it certainly um, plants a seed of, of connection and continuation of friendship from a beginning point of struggle, and that's really exciting of, of how we how we plant seeds to build that throughout this story, which I find very exciting, very exciting, very challenging. Leonard um, had the largest collection of Aboriginal artefacts in the Southern Hemisphere. He, he um, and with, through his family now, Marie Claire, who's in Austria, who's a part of this project, his daughter, you know, they're uh, recreating the, you know, the artefacts back to traditional language groups, etc. Um, so it's been really, really interesting, really interesting how, how the seeds of friendship and the processes that you go on to come full circle in understanding at some point in people's lives. Yeah. In terms of um, your involvement, Sid, when did you first get involved with the production? Because I believe there was, what, a fringe production in Adelaide in 21. Uh, There was a a reading in Adelaide in 2017, uh, Mm. a a reading at the Festival Centre and a reading also at Ralkinon Country. Yes. Glenn would know more about that than me. I first got involved 
in 2019, uh, part of the Black and Bright Festival, we did a reading. Um, but I didn't, and that was my first um, dive into the story. At that stage, I, I read it in an Australian accent. Uh, you know, I hadn't had the time to do the work. Now, it, you know, there's a lot of requirement. I've had to learn some German language, um, learning German accent. So I'm well out of my comfort zone. I've been. It's been great, though. We've rehearsed over a longer period than you normally would, which is Glenn's way of rehearsing. So more part-time over over many more months we, where the the project gets time to, to gestate and percolate and uh, it's a great way of working. I really love it. Yeah, which, Glenn, I, results, I'm sure, in a, a deeper, richer work. It, and that's what we've discovered. We've discovered that from Indigenous Trilogy last year that, that we felt that by the time that we got to the end of the season that we were just starting to kind of, you know, it, the story being ingrained and, and so I felt that if we extend the rehearsal time then that'll give that time to, yes, to become a part of us and body and things like that. So I think that's worked in our favour. It certainly sounds like it would. It makes sense rather than the traditional, I don't know, four-week kind of part-time rehearsal mm. or, or four-week full-time rehearsal if you're lucky enough to work for kind of one of the state companies or something like that. Kind of, uh, you, yeah. you instead get a, a longer, slower, deeper opportunity to really find the truth of not just the character you're playing mm. but the story you're and, playing and the response, well. <coughs> Pardon me. And the responsibility... Uh, of the of the story, you know, the responsibility to to Leonard's family, uh, the responsibility to Glenn and uh, you know the Narangiri people, and the the honour for me as a white fellow being able to to be asked to tell this story, you know, and and the generosity of spirit that still uh, amazes me in this country, um, given where we, <laughs> what we've just been through with the referendum, etc. That the generosity of spirit still to share story, to share culture, you know, it, it just amazes me, and it's a it's a deep honour for me as an actor to to get to be a part of this. You know, so sometimes um, when I'm on stage as Leonhard listening to Glenn, I'm not acting because, I, you know, I'm in my bliss listening to this, this wonderful, rich history and story. Now, in terms of uh, the, the, the cultural right to tell this story, mm. Glenn, talk to us about the, the protocols that were involved in mm. you being able to, t to tell this and able to present uh, Miwi 3027 uh, on stage at the La Mama Courthouse. Yes. So the National Caller went out, uh, Leon Jupner Buckskin, uh, who's a producer for the Aboriginal, project, uh, Aboriginal Diggers Project with Country Arts South Australia, put a call out, I applied, I was, um, uh, you know, lucky to uh, receive the opportunity to be the writer for the theatre section because they had a short film section, theatre section and a visual arts section. So the theatre section was based on Roland Carter from Raukin and so therefore um, I, you know, my family, my mother's matrilineal line from Raukin, Karong, Narangeri, uh, Tangany um, was then um, through my mother uh, 
taken on a proper cultural process in regards with the story, in regards with elders, aunties, uncles, community, living on country for over two years uh, to be able to... Um, to be able to, to learn about Roland from those who'd grown up in community who knew Roland, uh, which was quite exciting, to be able to work in the hall down in Ralkin, which is next to the church, which is on the $50 note, where Roland, when he came home from the war and put on the movies and the dances there for community to experience those. So it's gone on a proper cultural process in regards to what needed to be done with a story that comes from country, that comes from community, that is a lived experience story. So making sure that I am accountable, that I am accountable to my mother and to my people. And so it's gone on that journey. And we also had uh, the mother of my children, uh, Dr Kirsty Riley, who wrote her PhD. And Miwi was one of those stories, those cultural proper process stories within the PhD that that then plants the seeds for Indigenous and non-Indigenous people when they come together in within the rehearsal room to be able to um, uh, go down that pathway. Which then results in the play that people can now see uh, at the Carlton Courthouse, uh, so official, well, the La Mama Courthouse, the old Carlton Courthouse, 349 Drummond Street in Carlton, uh, Miwi 3027 is playing from the 16th until the 26th of November. So, what, previewing tonight? We previewed last night. Oh, previewed last night. Opening tonight. Opening tonight, running through until the 26th and being live-streamed this Friday, the 17th of November at 7.30pm. The live-stream playback will be then available for 72 hours. Uh, and I'll, and lamama.com.au is where you go for all the details and to book tickets. I've already got myself a ticket for Sunday. Very much looking forward to coming along and seeing it, uh, especially seeing as I missed the Indigenous Trilogy, Glenn, because I got bloody COVID and couldn't come on the day that all three works were being presented back to back. So my apologies for that, but I'm glad I get to see this one. But um, in terms then of the preview last night, how did it go? Because our work is never finished until it's in front of an audience so it went really really well yes um you know it's 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 always uh, exciting and nerve-wracking and uh yeah really good feedback probably uh we were 50 percent capacity last night and uh yeah it was wonderful to finally finally realize it and absolutely spot on in regards to the continuation of the maturity of the story and so through the rehearsal process you know the maturity coming right up to when you know we were ready for an audience with the preview and so this story will continue to mature through this season and then hopefully other seasons down the track. So for more details about MeWe 3027 uh, on from opening tonight, running through until the 26th of November at the La Mama Courthouse, Drummond Street, Carlton. Go to lamama.com.au and, yeah, if for whatever reason, say health reasons, whatever mean, you cannot attend the live performance. It will be live streamed this Friday, 7.30pm uh, and details about that at lamama.com.au as well. I've been chatting with the writer, director and 
one of the performers, a man of many hats, um, uh, Glenn Shea, and uh, one of the other actors, Sid Brisbane, all about MeWe3027. Gentlemen, it's been an absolute pleasure having you in the studio. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you for having us, Richard. Thank Cheers, you. Richard. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the art, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. 